You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast between myself, Arthur Parkinson and my friend Sarah Raven. Today we're going to talk about slowly starting to clear the garden, getting it sort of ready for winter as things start to go over and some of you may have already even had the first frost, which means we need to stop preparing pots and borders and the garden to make it look like it's ready for welcoming and being prepared for the season of winter ahead of us. Yes, well, you're right. It really depends where you are in the country, doesn't it? And so here in Sussex, certainly we haven't had our first frost yet, but you never know. And for certain people, there have already been frost. So if you're high up or if you're further north, there have been frost. So we just thought it was a good subject just so that everyone can get their heads around it. And it's kind of one of those nice things like you start lighting the fire and you start thinking about bringing tender things inside because you don't want to miss that moment where, you know, your citrus has already been scorched or your pelargoniums have been frosted. If they're in pots, you, you want to bring them in. So what would be your first thing, Arthur, do you think, if you felt it was getting really chilly at night and in the flower yard, what would you be thinking of doing? Uh, certainly all the pelargoniums would probably be in. And also, if I had any of them, which I don't this year, but um, if I did chrysanthemums, they'd be brought into any vacant areas of a greenhouse, um, which I know you do at Perch Hill religiously, particularly because often in November we're still teaching flower arranging, aren't we? So mm. we need the chrysanthemums. And if they're left out in the garden, they just get ruined, even though they can cope with a bit of cold, mm. the wet and the damp, it just destroys them. And um, if your greenhouse is empty, and normally it will be by then, it's a perfect thing to do, isn't it? To march all your tender things in, including chrysanthemums, which will still be growing and still flowering. Mm. Yeah, it is it is a real discovery that with chrysanthemums because we used to just leave them in the garden, but they just got either trashed by the wind or the rain. Mm. And it just felt such a shame because they had literally just come into flower, into full flower, lots of the varieties like Tula improved and orange Aloise and that lovely Avignon pink. And so what we then experimented with is we would plant three chrysanthemum cuttings in a big pot, either a five or a seven litre pot out in the garden and tried both just sinking the pot into the ground and supporting it and staking it. And others, we just left them, uh, we took them out of the pot and planted them. And then we just uh, it was slightly easier to just, as soon as the tomatoes had been harvested in the greenhouse, you you have a gap. And so we just lifted the pots of the croissants or dug up the root ball with the three cuttings in a clump and staked as a group and put them into the greenhouse. And then I find with lots of the varieties, there's a lovely one called tarantula red, which is a spider crimson colored one. I'm able to pick them honestly pretty much until Christmas and um, certainly to the end of November. And so it just gives you that that sort of lovely thing to have once the dahlias have gone. And of course, croissants like dahlias are edible. And in Japan, actually, they really use them quite a lot for savory and sweet jellies. That sort of slightly strange, I find it a slightly musty flavor. 
But you can just dismember the petals, chuck them over a salad or chuck them over a cake or put them over an ice cream or whatever. And um, they are all completely edible. And they are just such a lovely replacement to the dahlia. So yes, a good thing. I think what I would add to that is just be aware to not be an over-tidy gardener. And I think you and I both strongly agree on this. There are various reasons for that. Don't don't sort of go out and just think, right, it's like spring cleaning the house. I'm going to autumn clean the garden and I'm going to get rid of all the cobwebs and all the seed heads and all the standing brown leaves that are beginning to die back. What I find is there are many reasons not to do that. The first is aesthetics. And it's almost a cliche now, but of course, it's lovely looking at the seed heads of, for instance, a Japanese anemone. They're beautiful. They're like drumsticks on a stem. And other arching stems like crocosmias, they form a beautiful skeleton. Acteas, beautiful skeleton. Hydrangeas, wonderful flat browning heads. So, you know, leave lots of stuff there to give you architecture to, for the spiders to spin their webs between, then get backlit by light and frost. But also, um, which I'm sure you're going to talk much more about, it's incredibly good for wildlife to leave stuff. And the third thing, just horticulturally, what we have found here is all those little salvias that we underplant our roses with, the little microphylla, gregii or gemensis hybrids. If we cut those back hard after our first frost, so they've been browned, what we find is they die. Whereas if we leave the foliage as it is, frosted and browned and looking pretty untidy, I mean, I talked about this in the Pelagonium episode, but what we found is if we leave the foliage of those on the plant, they create their own microclimate, they create their own sort of winter duvet, and those salvias and other tender perennials actually become five degrees more hardy. So they put up with really a more substantially tough weather. And so it won't apply if you live in a really cold, wet climate. But certainly here in Sussex and in the south of England, leaving that canopy over them of their own foliage and stems really makes a big difference to hardiness. But why don't you talk about the seed heads that birds seem to love that you really want to leave in the garden as long as possible? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a completely different ball game with a small garden when it comes to tidying because you've not got the luxury of of having corners that can be left mm. to wild. I mean, I, I'm i afraid I admit quite freely that you can't really get the impact of the show unless you do choose to rip out. So I can't leave mm. the mm. salvia and actually totally by the door looking like whether... I don't want to look at them, frankly, for four months. No. Um, it's all right if they're down the garden path. So that will impact your plant selection or whether yeah. you're prepared to actually invest in them as annuals. And to be honest, I, I have to treat a lot of things that could be left in a large garden to overwinter naturally, a lot of those things have to become annuals because I've mm. got nowhere to put them. Mm. And I can't plant a bulbless annual with all the pot toppers of spring mm. if I have to leave something to overwinter. So that is something to consider. And I was guilty of, of over-tidying. I think that's one of the, the problems in horticultural training. You're not given the wildlife point of view at all. You're just taught, actually, your best friend is a leaf blower and you're going to spend a whole week leaf blowing and raking and, you know, basically making mosaics in mulch. That was that was my <laughs> horticultural training, which is completely against wildlife and um, mm. will make your garden devoid of any insect activity and particularly bird activity too, because they've got no cover mm. and there's nothing um, harboring all those nice insects that they possibly might find on a winter's day. Mm. So I've tried to find a balance at home of making the garden look 
properly prepared for winter and beautiful, but also keeping a lot of the brash, a lot of the old seed heads. What I do is with the old sweet peewig grams of silver birch, they get plunged into a dolly tub or the little sliver of ground I've got. And I literally stuff it like it's a living, crazy dolly mixture of seed heads. So it looks mm. like a little bonfire, really. And what that does is create a little a wigwam of old stuff that everything can go into. And birds like wrens particularly like it and the robin can perch on top on a winter's day. Brilliant. So that's stuffed with all my panicum, all my old millet, all my old sunflower heads, any uh, hollow stems, which sunflowers will have any old dahlia foliage that will get stuffed in. And actually it looks quite nice if mm. you do it delicately. And then everywhere around that can be mulched and preened. And um, one thing I used to do at Bridgewater, because I used to clear these huge raised beds, which were very on public display, and I'd have to mulch them and plant them with bulbs. I used to do little fences of silver birch because it's so pliable. You yes. can weave it. And that really made the bed look nicely tucked away for winter. Yes. So staking really comes into play. It's a bit early to be doing staking, to be honest. You know, this early in the year, the silver birch probably still got leaves on it. So you might have to wait a little bit. But it gives it immediate architecture. Yeah, exactly. Rather than just a complete desert of put to bed, it's just earth, you know. Mm. But it's a, it's an art, isn't it? Because a lot of things that we love, like the roses love to be mulched, don't they? Mm. The dailies, of course, once you've had a hard frost and they've been blackened, they've got to be mulched over. Mm. So mm. it is... I think it's about, you know, probably less than half clearing, but where you are clearing, making it lovely with a bit of mulch, but then you can have a little bit of decay yes. and just making places for things to hide in. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's art and you get better of it over time, but just remembering actually that could be a place for a ladybird to live or, you know, just thinking not just about your visual, about the, the wildlife that you could be impacting or benefiting from what you're doing. Yeah, that reminds me your idea of the of the wigwam being stuffed with all the seed heads. Mm. Uh, this sounds like a name drop, and I, I guess it is in a way. But it's just <laughs> I found it quite entertaining. But I once a few years ago, um, one autumn, literally at this time of year, I think it was when the children were on half term, which I think is about now. We we went to stay with some friends in New York, and they introduced me to Martha Stewart, and we went out to her estate, which is about an hour outside. New York from Manhattan. And not only did she have the most glorious stable of glossy black horses, all exactly the same and exactly the same stables, all matching in the most elegant sort of slate blue, blue gray coloring, but she taught me how to make a bird feeder wreath. Mm. And actually, it makes me think for the recipe for this podcast i won't do an edible recipe i'll i'll put the recipe for the bird feeder wreath and what she, what she did is and i've sort of uh, developed this a little bit so i use spartan apples which are those little red apples which are often used on fruit farms as the pollinator tree because they flower for such a long time i think and they give you something that most people would consider was almost a bit too small for an eater but so they're they're like the size of a tangerine or smaller and they're bright red and the birds absolutely love them. So I wire those by poking a wire through at a right angle to the fruit. So if the core and the stem are pointing upwards at 90 degrees, I put a little bit of wire through and then I'll wire that on to either a bracken or a moss base. And so that will be where I'll start. And she didn't use apples actually, but um, what she used was pine cones and she rolled them in peanut butter and then rolled them in bird seed and then wired those on. So that was, uh, and they love the peanut butter and they love all the seeds. 
So all, all the you just go and get a wild bird seed. So that went on next. And then she had dried apples and sort of dried fruit, which she wired in little little bundles. And then you fill it out with things like seed heads from the garden. So here we use teasel. We use the panicums, both violaceum and frosted explosion. Uh, you know, all those endless things, Nicandra physaloides, the shoe fly plant. If you've got rose hips or if you've got crab apples in the garden, any of those can go. And then you hang it on the door and it's the most lovely sight because you'll see or hang it even sort of where you look out of your kitchen window on a wall and you'll just see it being visited. Uh, first of all, by robins, which of course are about the, the tamest. And so they'll come and start eating all the apples. And then you'll, you'll get the sparrows. And then, you know, for the seeds, you'll get the finches, uh, goldfinches particularly. And then eventually you'll get a, a really shy little wren will come and have a field day too. And um, what I found last winter is I did one in the autumn and I just kept going back and replenishing. So I would then put in more pine cones rolled in peanut butter, rolled in <laughs> seed. And it was just really nice. It was like a sort of living bird feeder, basically. And I, I love doing that. So I'll put the recipe for that in the fact sheet and how to make it. And so everyone can have a go at that if they fancy. But that's not so much to do with shutting the garden down, but it is a good use of don't think that the seed heads aren't of value, I guess. Yeah, it's using the season's bounty in an ornamental way, isn't it? Yeah. Clubbing it all together because it's hard if you've got everything dotted about and you want to clear at least a little bit to get your trenches of tulips in. Um, but no, good old Martha. I know she likes her birds. I know she's got red canaries. I didn't know she was so fond of the wild birds. So that's wonderful if she's yeah. telling the USA to get feeding their birds. Yeah. Um, yeah. They get cardinals, don't they, rather than blackbirds. Must be yes. wonderful to get one of those on the door. Yeah. Packing away. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. And then the other thing that I think is incredibly important is rather than raking up your leaves you said you had to spend oh i hate the noise of those things petrol filled Ah, hate that noise they gave you a bad back and i'm so (laughs) glad that they've done this research saying how bad they are for insects have you read about it yes you're basically blasting hundreds and thousands of insects using them and they're awful awful just use a rake so use a Um, rake yeah and a good brush nice soft brush if you're worried about the moss on your paving slabs that's the best thing i bought this year actually a nice soft brush yeah. So I can brush everything nice and softly. And then make a chicken wire. Well, if you're in a tiny garden, just get some bags and yeah. just pack all your leaves and pierce the the bag with a skewer to get a bit of aeration. And then just leave them somewhere where you don't even have to look at them until the following spring or possibly the following autumn. And they will have rotted down into this mm. fabulous, incredibly lovely leaf mold. And if you've got more space like we have here, we just knit next to our compost heap, separate to the compost. We just make a wire cage from chicken wire. And, and gradually, as we're collecting the leaves, either we leave them to rot down where they are, but if we're collecting the leaves, we just dump them in there and water it well when we've created the cage and then just leave them to rot down. And we've got a few years now down there. And then once it's rotted down, we can either combine it with the compost or we can use it as a mulch or we can use it into our potting compost because we're, we've completely moved to peat-free compost, but we find them quite impoverished. And so that leaf mold is a really good extra oomph as well as our organic farmyard manure to mix into our, into our compost. So that's another thing about leaf clearing. And then when do you think is, is the best time to do like your final cut of the lawn? 
Well, I don't have a lawn, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Good answer. <laughs> well, if you've got a wildflower lawn, you'd have already cut it, wouldn't you? And you'd be putting in lots of lovely bulbs for spring into that. So that yeah. probably wouldn't need to be cut. If it was an ornamental, like formal lawn, I've no idea. Yeah. Scar- well, you can scarify it, can't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can get the moss out for your wreaths. <laughs> I, I think um, exactly as you say, I mean, we don't really have formal lawns here. We have wildflower lawns. But I remember being taught at Great Dixter to do your last cut of your meadows. In fact, you've already cut them down mm, um, yeah. to neaten them up. But to do one last... Topping. Top, yeah, top over on the on the highest setting or the medium setting of your lawnmower. And what that means, and, and you do that as late as you can. So, you know, often end of November, but what that means is that when the crocuses and the aconites and the more delicate things like snowdrops come up through January, February, March, the grass, if you cut it, won't yet have started growing. So you really clearly see your bulbs. Whereas if you've left it quite long, what you find is that those bulbs are a little choked and they're right down in the grass. And so they have less impact. So I thought that was a really good tip. So we've done that ever since doing our last mow much later, a month or even six weeks later than we used to. So you just get these beautiful flower studded uh, Botticelli primavera picture style style lawns formal or not formal that works incredibly well and then i guess final thing we do here before we really start planning for the following spring and move on to planting bulbs which we're going to do a whole other thing on is how we plant what we plant where we plant for next spring but lifting dahlias is the thing and arthur touched on it but once the frost has cut your dahlias back to within four or five inches of the ground, but still with a bit of, of, of stem left on and mulch them deeply under six inches of some sort of dry mulch and put in a label and then leave them and up they'll come again next April. And they should be completely fine under a, under a good mulch to make them last through the winter. And I suppose the one thing, if you've got a bit of time that I'm guilty of, is all the plastic pots that you've been using to grow everything in, yeah. your root trainers, you know, nice sunny autumn or winter afternoon. Get them all out of the shed and get the handbrush and sweep them all out. And if you can, you take the things like your root trainers into the kitchen and just wash them up in the old pot water, a bit of washing up liquid. And that will just make sure you're not harboring any fungal spores or anything nasty. It's a habit that, to be honest, I'm guilty of not doing much. But if you can do it a little bit, it does help. And just organise your sheds because there's nothing worse than it getting to January and opening the shed door and smelling that smell of mice. Um, That often happens if you're a bit untidy. So nice autumnal sort out of all your equipment. You know, make sure your tools are nicely greased and cleaned. And uh, yeah, a good old fettle in your potting shed will be all the difference to yeah. uh, your activities in the spring yeah and then you open it in the new year and it feels like yeah, it's nice and encouraging rather than a depressing yeah. part of your life mm. yeah okay well i think that's a very good note to end on so thanks so much for listening everybody to what we feel are the most important things about shutting your garden down or not as the case may be and that's more what we think in the autumn and we will see you again next week. Thanks for listening to Grow Coquita Range. Next week, we're going to talk about force bulbs, hyacinths, amaryllis, and paper whites. So see you then.
You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.